Uh, well, welcome to Genesis. As John mentioned, my name is Michael. I have uh, the great privilege of uh, just being a pastor here and uh, been excited about what we've been doing and how we've been uh, walking through this fall. Uh, as John mentioned, we are doing a, a series called Conversations, and each week uh, we're tackling some really tough issues, some really big subjects. Uh, and it's not only questions that we have about these things, but it's questions that people maybe who don't know God, don't have a relationship with God, but yet are still asking questions that really matter. Uh, my heart for the whole conversation series, uh, you know, we have this quote, Socrates, the unexamined life is, is not a life that it's worth living, is that uh, in this season right now, this fall season, is that we would really stop to consider, is that we would examine ourselves, as it were, we would examine what we believe and why we believe what we believe and uh, even take it a step further and say, is what I believe right, and how would I actually know if it is right? Uh, but I know for myself, and I'm going to guess for a lot of us here, uh, examining ourselves, uh, taking time to slow down is challenging. Uh, many people just live very either busy lives or live very distracted lives, kind of jumping from thing to thing to thing. And the thought of slowing down to examine who we are and why we are the way we are and what we believe and why we believe it uh, is a big challenge. The one thing that will get us all to stop, the one thing that will uh, literally uh, stop us in our tracks, uh, as it were, uh, is the subject of suffering. And uh, my heart's been heavy uh, really leading up uh, to this conversation because uh, this is a conversation that touches every single one of us. Uh, there is not one person here uh, that has not gone through suffering at some level. Um, and the reality is there's probably some of us here that are in the thick of it right now, and you're suffering, your pain, it just, it's tangible. You can feel it. Uh, some of you might be on the tail end of just coming through a very difficult, very challenging, very trying uh, season uh, of suffering, and you're just exhausted, you're tired. Um, and this is not a, uh, uh, to sound as a threat, but the reality is uh, there might be suffering waiting for someone tomorrow. Uh, that phone might call and it might have on the other end news that will bring you into a new place of pain and suffering you've, you've never experienced before. So suffering is real. Uh, it's something that is for all of us. And my hope today is to begin to make some sense, uh, not only of how do we understand suffering, how do we understand things like pain and evil, uh, but how do we begin to walk through uh, those seasons of suffering, and even more than that, how do we uh, be used to encourage other people who are in that season uh, of suffering? Uh, in a great book uh, called The Grand Weaver, uh, Ravi Zacharias said it like this, the problem of pain has remained the single greatest question, not only for skeptics who use it as an excuse to doubt God's existence, but also for the believer who questions God's purpose. So really what's at stake here is not just a better understanding of the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, but what's at stake here uh, for many, if not most, if not all, is our relationship with God. Uh, there are many people who will use the problem of pain, the problem of suffering and evil in the world to say there is no God, because how could there be with so much evil and pain? And for some people who do believe in God and have a relationship with God, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, gets them to question God's purposes and his design in allowing you to go through suffering. So this is a huge conversation to be had because what's at stake is where we go with God. Um, are you prepared for the conversation? Let me just ask it like that. Are you prepared 
not just to have the conversation today, but would you be prepared to have the conversation with family, with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers? Uh, because this is a topic people have so many questions on. So would you be prepared to answer this? If God is really all-loving, as Christianity says he is, then why does he allow evil such as war, disease, famine, natural disasters to continue? If God is all-powerful, as you say, well, why can't he make it all go away? What about this? What about Haiti? 230,000 people. The tsunami, 250,000 people. Rwanda, Congo, Sudan, 30 million in slavery. Rapes, molestations, murders, terrorism. The list goes on and on. How could, there how could there possibly be a God with so much evil in the world? Or how about this? How would you respond to this? When will all this pain end? What did I ever do to deserve so much hurt, so much disappointment and suffering in my life? I believe in God, and I'm trying to walk with God, but it constantly seems like he's against me every step of the way. Those are real questions. Those are real statements. Those are real hurts behind each of those, those questions. So how do you answer them? Those might be some of your own questions, uh, but I promise you those are the questions that people have as it relates to the problem of pain and suffering and evil uh, in the world. Clearly, in 40-some-odd in minutes, I can't cover everything that could be said and covered as it relates to suffering, uh, so I've really narrowed it down to three questions that uh, I'm hoping to, uh, to answer. Number one would be this. Doesn't the fact that there's evil in the world disprove the existence of God? That would be the first question. Second question, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does he allow suffering? And question number three, what do I do when suffering hits home with me? And when suffering hits with someone else, how can I be able to help them as well? Uh, I'm going to share, as I've done in messages past, uh, share some observations as it relates to pain and evil and suffering as a way to hopefully shed light on how I'm going to answer each of these questions. So I share these quickly, but I share them hopefully foundationally to understand uh, these questions. So I'm going to give you five observations. Number one would be this. It was not meant to be like this, nor will it always be like this. And what I mean when I say that is when God created the world, uh, he created everything perfect. Actually, in Genesis 1, it's declared 10 times, it was good, it was good. So when God created, he created everything perfect. But when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God, sin entered the world, and sin impacted everything from creature to creation. There was nothing that sin did not taint from, uh, from uh, literally from people as well as the creation itself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said it like this, man, as God made him, was completely good and completely happy, but he disobeyed God and became what we now see. This condition was transmitted by heredity to all later generations, for it was not simply what biologists call an acquired variation. It was the emergence of a new kind of man, a new species never made by God that had sinned itself into existence. It's another way of saying we have really gone far away from what God intended for us. Sin has literally corrupted 
everybody and all of creation. There's nothing that sin literally live in a fallen, broken world, and we are fallen, broken people. So it was not always meant, it was not intended to be like this, but the great hope we have as we talk about pain and evil and suffering is it will not always be like this. The great hope that Revelation 21 says is, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So first observation, it was not meant to be like this, nor will it always be like this. So we have hope despite things are fallen and broken that God is redeeming all things including all of creation and all of us. Observation number two, suffering is real, it's powerful, and it impacts everyone. If you're a fan of the, the group REM, Michael Stipe wrote a song uh, called Everybody Hurts. And he said this, when your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone. When you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on, don't let yourself go. Everybody cries and everybody hurts. It's a very sad but real song that is true. Everybody hurts. Everybody has pain. There is not one of us who will not be touched or impacted by pain and suffering. Uh, in a great article that Eleanor Stump wrote called The Mirror of Evil, she said this, There is no time, no part of the globe free from evil. The crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. Now, my aim in talking about pain and talking about suffering is not to open maybe old wounds or rehash or bring you back to maybe last week or last month or five years ago where the suffering was just that tangible. I want to wrestle with suffering and understand or take a look at how we are to understand and make sense uh, of suffering. But... I wanted us to realize in this observation that it's real. Now, it might not be very tangible for you as you sit here right now. I realize that there might be many who are in the thick of it. But the world I live in, which is the same world you live in, there are a lot of people who are hurting. And the suffering is just overwhelming. And my hope is that you would not walk out of here with a great theological or philosophical or logical approach to the problem of pain, my heart would be that your heart would break and your heart would be willing to come alongside those who are just hurting because pain and suffering is that real. Just read C.S. Lewis's book this week um, called A Grief Observed. And he initially wrote a book called The Problem of Pain and he had experienced great suffering in his life. But shortly after his wife died of cancer, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, and it was the most honest, most raw, most intense look uh, into suffering uh, that I've ever read. And he said this, Not only writing, but even reading is too much. Even shaving, what does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth? Not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but 
This is the God. This is what God is really like. There are many people right now, probably in your world, if it's not you, someone in your world, and my conviction is God wants to use you to be hope, to bring hope to someone who is where C.S. Lewis once was right after his wife had died. Number three, no one will get away with it. Justice delayed is not justice denied. About three weeks ago, there was a group of about 25 of us who got together uh, to learn and to study and uh, make ourselves aware of the reality and the horrors of human trafficking. And if you would have sat through that lecture and that conversation, you would have been disgusted at what is happening right now as it relates to sex slave, sex, uh, sex slave trade, human trafficking. It is absolutely disgusting. And that is just one of the atrocities that takes place in the world and the culture that we live in. And it would be easy to come to the conclusion is it just seems like evil is going unchecked. It just seems like the bad guys seem to be getting away with it. But what Scripture reminds me, reminds each of us is that in Romans 14, 12, it says this, So then, each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Justice delayed is not justice denied. No one will get off the hook, as it were. We will all have to stand before a righteous, holy, perfect God and have to give an account for how we lived, for our lives, for the decisions, the choices that we made. So when I look at the evil that has the appearance of going unchecked, unpunished, where's the justice? I have complete confidence that justice delayed will not be justice denied. Number four, observation, there is an evil one who is working evil in the world. Now, this is where some people will get uncomfortable and be like, Michael, are you talking about Satan, the devil, Lucifer? Yes, there is an evil one who is working evil in the world. John 10.10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the game plan of the evil one is to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 John 5, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So my observation here is not to freak anyone out or scare anyone, but my observation that there is an evil one who is working evil in the world is to, that might make us feel uncomfortable, that might be weird to talk about, but we live in a physical world, but there is a spiritual realm all around us. And in that spiritual realm, there is a battle taking place where their evil one is seeking to work evil in us and around us. Now, the great hope that Scripture says, if you know Jesus, then you're on the winning team. If you have a relationship with Jesus, this is what Scripture says. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. So the one who's in the world might be wreaking evil in the world, but if you know Jesus and Jesus is in you, then he who is in you is so much greater, so much stronger, so much more powerful than the evil that is taking place in the world. Number five, and finish with this last observation before we answer the questions. Number five is this, God cares. He's not ignorant 
or indifferent to our pain and suffering. So many times in Scripture, Jesus was posed with this question of, well, don't you care? Don't you care, Jesus? There's a story told of uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they had a brother who died. And Jesus delayed in coming to see this brother. And when Jesus finally came on the scene, the brother had died. And Martha says this to Jesus in John eleven twenty one. 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother, he wouldn't be dead. How many times have you ever thought that, maybe even asked that or said that to God? God, if you would have shown up, it wouldn't have turned out like this. God, if you would have stepped in, if you would have intervened, if you would have done something, I would not be living in this result. I would not be living with this pain and suffering. So our conclusion is because God did not do what we wanted God to do, well, the logical answer is then God doesn't care. And that's not true. Old Testament, New Testament scripture, time and time and time again is the message that God cares. He is not indifferent to our pain. He is not indifferent to our suffering. Dr. Peter Kreft, Kreft um, actually is going to be speaking here at Genesis in January. We're actually holding a conference um, uh, with the Acts 29 Network. And this is probably the premier uh, author, theologian, philosopher on suffering in the 20th, 21st century. And uh, he's a professor at Boston College right now. Uh, but when it comes to the topic of suffering, he, I am not exaggerating. He is the premier um, theologian philosopher, and he said this, even when God doesn't immediately tow us out of our suffering, the fact that he's with us is at least the most impressive and satisfying answer to the problem of suffering that I know. God doesn't give us a lot of words to answer the problem of suffering. According to Christianity, he gives us a single word, and his name is Jesus. God shows you, he shows me that he cares because he showed up. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't put himself above pain. He didn't put himself above suffering. He didn't have a big white coat on there. Nothing evil could touch him. Actually, scripture says in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deep, deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and, he, and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. So the shoe is on the other foot. When we accuse God of saying you don't care, God says, no, actually what happened is I demonstrated just how much I cared when I sent my son to save, to rescue, to redeem, to reconcile, and you killed him. You were the ones who did not care. So my fifth observation is God cares. He cares deeply. He cares deeply about your pains, your hurts, your disappointments, your suffering. He cares deeply about the evil that's taking place in your world and in and around your world. And I know that he cares because he sent Jesus. And it says this in Hebrews 2.18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us. I know that he cares because when I suffer, I don't suffer as a man who suffers by himself. I suffer with one who is familiar with suffering and his name is Jesus. So God doesn't ignore our suffering, nor does he just wait for us on the other side of it. Jesus walks with us through it so that we'd look more like him at the end of it. Five observations. 
Clearly, much more could be said observing pain, suffering, evil in the world, but I hope these observations will now help as I walk through each of these questions. So question number one was this. Doesn't the fact that there's evil in the world disprove the existence of God? Uh, famous atheist Bertrand Russell said, there is no God, therefore there is no good and evil. If he's right, if he's right that there is no God, which means there is no good, there is no evil, then why does it bother us when a woman is raped? Why does it bother you when a five-year-old girl or boy is molested? If there is no God and there is no good and there is no evil, then those things should have no impact on you or me whatsoever. The fact that it does, the fact that we say, no, that's wrong. Rape, molestation, it's wrong. Would go to Bertrand Russell and say, he's wrong. Evil is real. Now, as I answer this question of, uh, doesn't the fact that there's evil in the world disprove the existence? Well, I would submit that there is evil, but I want to look at, well, how do we understand evil in the world? And I could kind of break it down into two different camps. There's natural evil and there's moral evil. Natural evil would literally be things like natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, and things like disease. Now, the Bible does not shy away from the fact that we live in a fallen world. And I said that sin has not only corrupted mankind, but sin has literally corrupted the created order. It says this in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration. That's another way of saying the created order was subjected to, not by choice, but because sin, it was subjected to suffering and frustration. Now, I'm not suggesting that the natural evil, this is so easy to understand or comprehend. How could any of us look in the face of 250,000 lives lost in the wake of a tsunami and not struggle with natural evil in our world? So we have something we call natural evil. Now, I, picking on the example of the tsunami, that wave was not big enough, too big for God. It was not beyond God. But a wave like that, a hurricane like this, an earthquake like that, that devastated Haiti, is a result of sin on, on the world. So there's natural evil. Number two, or the second type of evil to understand, would be moral evil. I would argue that most of the evil in this world is a result of people literally being evil to one another. Clearly, there's natural evil, disasters, disease, but then there is moral evil. In an interview that uh, U.S. ambassador in Rwanda, uh, his name is Robert uh, Siepel, he was interviewed about the, just the horrors and the atrocities that took place in Rwanda. And he said this, there are no categories to express such horror. Someone used the word bestiality. No, that dishonors the beasts. Animals kill for food, not for pleasure. They kill one or two prey at a time, not a million for no reason at all. Moral evil is evil that is the result of people being evil to one another. Now, let me ask the question, is it God's fault 
that man commits evil against one another. Meaning, is it right to blame God for the evil in the world that is a result of our evil choices? And I would submit to you, no. It would not be right for me to blame God for the evil things that I would do that would cause pain and suffering to someone else. Now, in America, I hear this question asked a lot. If God cared, if God, like where is God in places like Somalia, the Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Niger? By the way, I list those countries in particular because they are having a devastating famine that is taking the, the lives of thousands and thousands of people every single day. And we as Americans ask, well, where is God in the midst of that? I find it interesting that this question is coming from us where year after year after year after year, our best-selling books are on dieting. The earth produces enough food to give every person 3,000 calories a day. But yet we blame God for human irresponsibility, selfishness, and greed. So is it right for us to look at evil in the world and blame God for our evil choices, our evil decisions? I would argue that evil in the world does not disprove God. Rather, evil in the world reveals, you ready for this one? That we're evil. <laughs> evil in the world reveals that we are evil evil. And knowing that about ourselves reveals something even deeper. If we are like we are and we do the things that we do, that would say to me and hopefully to you, we need God. We need a Savior to save us from the evil that we do to ourselves, the evil that we do to others. Now, some would argue, why doesn't God just wipe out evil from the world? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to answer that when I get to question two. But let's ask this question. How do you even know if something's evil? Like, who told you that raping, molesting, you pick your crime, how, how do we even know that that is actually evil? For evil to be considered evil, there must be a standard which we judge evil. C.S. Lewis, Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this, you can't call a line crooked unless you know what a straight line is. And his point was just simply for you to call anything evil requires a standard of good. The existence of evil in the world actually argues for the existence of God, not the other way around. So evil does not disprove God. It actually helps us to understand that there is a God. Now, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, I know I quote him a lot. C.S. Lewis was a profound atheist. And what kept him in his atheism was the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And he said this in his book, Mere Christianity. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Where was I, what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? We must wrestle then with where does it, uh, where does our standard of good come from? So if you say there is no God because there's evil in the world, then where does our standard of good and evil come from? Who gets to decide that what is absolute good and what is absolute evil or absolute wrong? Is that left up to us? Well, I think most of us would have a problem with Hitler's description of what was absolutely good or what was absolutely wrong. 
the point being is, uh, I would argue at least, Scripture makes clear that God is the one who has declared, He is the one who has set a standard of what is morally good, what is right, and what is wrong. So our standard, actually, that there is good and evil comes from a God who is good, a God who is righteous, a God who is holy, a God who is pure. And anything that is not that would fall under the camp of evil. Why? Because there's a standard of good that is flowing from someone who is good. Question two, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does he allow suffering? Why not just put an end to it? What's the point? What's the point? Now, I think the thought behind this question is simply, God's not good because if he is, he'd get rid of evil. And maybe God's not as powerful as people say he is because if he was all powerful, then clearly he would have enough power within his reservoir of power to just get rid of all evil. So either God is not good at all, or God's just not powerful enough to actually tackle the evil of the world, or maybe God is all-powerful, God is all-good, but maybe he's more like a, a, a monster, this divine monster that just enjoys humanity's pain and suffering and tears and disappointments. Let me ask this question. What, would, what world would be better? Okay, so you're going to give two options here. What world would be better? A world where there was no evil, so a world where there's just no evil, none, or a world where you and I have no freedom to make choices, meaning a world which free will was just not possible. Which world would be the better world? No evil or a world that you and I don't have the ability to choose. You and I are more like robots pre-programmed to do only certain things. I think most people would agree that to create people without any freedom of choice, just to create us as robots, would be an act of evil in and of itself. So clearly God could have gotten rid of evil. And you know the two ways he could have done it? He would have to get rid of you. That would be number one, and me. I would be in that camp as well. So if God wants to get rid of evil, he's got to get rid of us. If God also wanted to get rid of evil, then he would have to have created you and I with the ability or inability to make any choices. Both of those seem to me to be evil in and of themselves. So if we follow this line of thought, does this mean that somehow, some way, God is the author of creator or creator of evil? If he created us with free will, and I think all of us would agree we have free will, we can make decisions. We can choose what to do and what not to do. So then, therefore, do we tie evil to God? It's his fault. It's, it's his doing. Scripture says this in James. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one towards evil. So how does it work? If God is not the author, creator of evil, how does it work? God created us with free will, which allows for the possibility of evil. The fact that he created us with free will also meant he created the possibility for there to be evil in the world that he created. 
humanity took it upon themselves to actualize that possibility, meaning we've used our free will to do evil. And when we did evil, there was pain, there was suffering. I would say the majority of human suffering in the world is a direct result of humanity using our free will, our choices to kill, to slander, to be selfish, to stray sexually, to break out, to break promises, to be reckless, to be greedy, to abuse, to dominate, to be cruel. We've used our free will to do evil. Because God is all good and because God is all powerful, meaning he didn't wipe out all of us, and meaning he didn't actually create us as robots without the ability to choose, then logically the conclusion would be, well, God is somehow, there's a purpose in this. There is a plan in this. If God is allowing there to be free will, knowing that there would be evil, then somehow is there a plan in, in suffering? Is there a purpose in pain? And again, Dr. Peter Kreft says it like this, God would not allow any evil unless his wisdom and power were such as to bring out of it an even greater good. He goes on to say that some, this might be the fairy tale answer. And I like his response, we are not yet and ha happily ever after. We are struggling toward it. Struggling towards what God has for us in heaven. So my question, I'm going to answer this in a few different ways. How does God use evil and suffering? He didn't get rid of it. He didn't get rid of us, and we have free will. So how is God using suffering or evil or pain in the world? I'll give you five very quick ones. I encourage you to write these down. Number one would be character. How is God using pain, suffering, evil to forge character? Romans 5 says it like this. We can rejoice too. When we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. God uses suffering to form in us what otherwise could not be formed. Let me ask you a hard question. Think of the hardest thing you've ever gone through thus far in life. Would you say on the other side of that now, and I realize maybe this could just be a few days ago, but would you say that you are better off for having gone through it? That somehow, some way, that pain, that suffering, that evil has actually gotten you to the point of where you are and has somehow shaped and forged and formed your character into the man and to the woman that you are today. Robert Vellard, in his book, Conversations with C.S. Lewis, I think we've only got a few extra copies left uh, that we've been selling for $5. This has been one of the most helpful books uh, to me in studying and preparing for this series. I strongly recommend you pick up a copy. He said this, Our character can be formed because of the reality of evil and suffering. This world and our suffering in it can shape our souls for the better. This world can try us, yes, but also can build us up through our sufferings. This is a world that, if we will give it a chance, can prepare us for eternity. God will use your pain, your hurt, your suffering, the evil in this world. He's using it to form character in you. And not just so you're a better person a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now. He's using this pain, suffering, evil in the world to prepare us 
for eternity with him. Number two, number one was character. Number two of how does God use evil and suffering in the world. Number two is vision. I'm not sure other than Jesus if there was a biblical character that suffered more than Job. His life was just flipped upside down. Like he lost everything, but more than losing everything, and if you're a parent and have ever lost a child, you know the pain of what it's like to lose a child. But he lost 10 in one day. I cannot imagine the pain and the suffering physically that he went through, emotionally that, went, that he went through. And through all of this, he had no idea what was going on. But I love Job's testimony at the end of this. At the end of his suffering, he had new vision. And he said this in Job 42.5, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. If somehow, way, God could use your pain, your suffering, to transform your vision of God so that you wouldn't be the man or the woman that just said, yeah, I know about God. Yeah, I, I read my Bible each day. Yeah, I do spiritual things and go to church. If your testimony could be, and I think God wants it to be, no, I, I've seen God. I don't just know about him. I don't have stories about him. I have seen God. It took going to hell for me to see him. But now my testimony is I've seen God. My vision, my relationship with God has been completely transformed. Would you be willing to go through it if you knew at the end of it your relationship, your depth of intimacy, your depth of friendship, your vision of God would be so radically altered where your testimony would see, I knew something about God, but now I've seen him. Character, vision, the third one would be this, salvation, meaning God uses your suffering not only for your good, but for the benefit of those around you. If you're familiar with an Old Testament character, his name is Joseph. Joseph literally was rejected, left for dead, then sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, and then imprisoned. This is a guy who knew suffering all too well. And at the end of his testimony, would you know it? His testimony sounded like this in Genesis 50. You intended to harm me? And he's talking to these brothers who actually did this to him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Isn't that amazing? To be able to look at your suffering and your pain and say, you know what? God is, is using this, or I trust that God will use this to benefit somebody else. Would you be willing to go through just literally the depths of loss and pain so that maybe you could be used by God to bring someone else comfort who's in the midst of it. Maybe some of you have gone through hell in marriage. Would you be willing to go through it just so somehow, some way, some other couple who is on the verge of ending it all and thrown in the towel that you could be used by God to say, you know what, hang on. I've been where you are, and there's hope. Would you, for those of you who have just gone through literally the pain of addiction, would you be willing to be used by God to come, up, 
come along someone else who is so lost in the pain of addiction and living in the consequences of their addiction to say, you know what? I found a better way. I found a way out. And I was so lost. I was so messed up. But God rescued me. And he can for you too. Would some of you maybe who've just gone through persecution, whether it literally be an emotional persecution, a physical persecution, some type of suffering, you chose to do good, you chose to do the right thing, you chose to do the holy thing, the pure thing, and as a result, you took upon persecution from someone else. Maybe God wants to use you and the persecution he's taken or allowed you to go through so that you can come alongside someone else and say, you know what? Let me walk with you through this because I've been there. I've been there. I see that God allows and uses suffering, pain, evil, not just for our good, not for our growth, not for our character, not just for our vision of God, but for the salvation of others. Number four would be this. How does God use evil suffering in the world? Well, he's using it to accomplish a great purpose. Now, I, I don't sit up here as one who actually thinks I understand all of God's plans and God's purposes. I don't know the mind of God in the face of great pain and evil and suffering, but what I do trust wholeheartedly is that God is using all things, not just some things, not just good things, not just okay things, but he's using all things, including suffering, pain, and evil, to accomplish his great plan, his great purpose. Again, Dr. Peter Kreeft um, was interviewed by Lee Strobel in the book, The Case for Faith, and he said this, the death of God himself on the cross. At the time, nobody saw how anything good could ever result from this tragedy, and yet God foresaw that the result would be the opening of heaven to human beings. So the worst tragedy in history brought about the most glorious event in history. It would be easiest for, to have the attitude of, there is so much evil, pain, suffering in the world, it doesn't make sense. God could never possibly use that. Well, what do you do with the cross of Christ? Because they said the same thing. How could God possibly ever use humanity's most wicked thing, most wicked moment in killing God himself in his son Jesus? God used it for, for good. God had a purpose in that. The worst tragedy in history brought about the most glorious event in history. So I've given you four things. God uses it for our character. God uses it for our vision of him. God uses it for salvation, that he'd use us to encourage, to bless someone else who's in the midst of it. And he uses it just to accomplish his purposes, often unknowns to us, but he's using it. And the fifth one is glorification. And what I mean by that is God uses pain and suffering so that somehow, some way, he would be glorified in it. There's a great story of a young man who was born blind in the New Testament. And everyone's like, well, who sinned? Whose fault is this? Because clearly, this guy's blind. He's suffering because of it. So did he sin to get this condition? Or maybe it was just his parents who sinned, and God's punishing uh, the parents through the blindness of the son. And Jesus said this in John chapter 9, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen. What a great response. Yeah, this is suffering. 
This is pain. But yet, this is not because of something he did or his parents did. God uses evil, uses suffering in our lives so that we would see God and glorify, meaning worship, meaning praise, meaning love, meaning adore. So God uses hard things to get us to a place where we glorify God. Not glorify the things around us, which we're great at doing, but he uses pain and suffering to get us to the point where now God's at work here. That's a philosophical approach to understanding pain and evil and suffering in the world, a theological approach. But the third question that I have, and we'll finish with this, is what happens when it hits home? Like I've tried to walk through logically, this is how we can understand suffering. Theologically and even philosophically, how we can understand it. But what happens when it shows up on your door? What happens when you get the call and on the other end, there is death, there is disease, there is loss. C.S. Lewis said it like this, it's one thing to discuss this important issue from a distance in, in, a, in philosophical terms, what one might call the intellectual problem of evil, but it is quite another to experience suffering in a powerfully emotional sense. It, it's crucial to have a theological understanding of suffering. It's, I'd say, uh, important, uh, crucially important to have a philosophical, a logical understanding to the problem of pain and suffering. But my third question is really addressing the heart, is addressing your emotion. What do I do when suffering hits home with me? And specifically, also, how can I help others? I don't think I have to convince you of this, but suffering is real. You've experienced it. You might be experiencing it, or you will experience it. Jesus actually promised us that there would be suffering. He said in John 16, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So let's not be shocked when that call comes when things get hard, when there's challenges that just ultimately lead to pain and suffering and tears. So the question is, how do, what do I do when suffering comes? How do I not just suck it up, but how do I suffer as one who is, I'm very aware that God is in the midst of, of this right now. Number one, I'll give you a few different answers of how do you do it and then how do you come alongside people. Number one would just be this, you got to pay attention to the pain. My wife's knee has been hurting for about the last five or six years. And for whatever reason, none of us had the thought like, well, hey, maybe that pain is actually trying to clue us into something is not right. Something is off. And because we did not pay attention to the pain, she's having knee surgery on Wednesday. And I'm pretty convinced that if we would have paid attention to the pain about five years ago when it started happening... I don't think she'd be going under the knife this week. God uses pain in our life to get our attention, just like the body. When something hurts, that's your body's way of trying to communicate to you, hey, something's not working. It's not right. Pay attention to it. 
I like how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when pain comes, don't ignore it. Don't act like this is no big deal. It's a good chance when pain, when hurt, when suffering comes, God is trying to do something to get your attention, and he loves you enough to actually draw your attention to the problem, whatever that might be. So when it comes, pay attention to it. Number two would be this. Don't go it alone. Don't be the lone ranger. Don't be the, the man or the woman says, I, I can do this. I can handle it. I've got broad shoulders. I'm a tough chick. I'm a hardcore dude. I can do this. No, you can't. Well, let me rephrase that. You can, but you will suffer in a way that you were never intended to suffer, meaning you suffer alone. Allow someone else into your hurt, your pain, your suffering. Job's friends, for all the things that they did not do right when they tried to counsel Job, the very beginning they did what was right. And it's in Job chapter 2. It says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one said a word to Job. For they saw that his suffering was too great for words. There will be a time where your suffering is just, there's nothing you can even say. And my question is not like, do you have friends in your life who would just sit with you? I hope you do. That's why we're not just committed to getting together on a Sunday just to be encouraged and challenged. We get together throughout the week because we need each other. We don't do life alone. We do life together to sit with each other when there's pain and suffering. So number one, pay attention. Number two, don't go it alone. Number three, I would say this quickly, don't compare. It's so easy for someone to say, you know what? Well, gosh, my suffering's not like that guy's suffering. I mean, gosh, he just lost, seems like he lost everything. Mine's not that big of a deal. Sometimes it's good to look out at others to get some perspective but if you compare yourself to other people's pains, their hurts, disappointments, and suffering, is what will happen is you'll miss what God is trying to do through your pain, through your suffering, through your hurt. Ravi Zacharias in The Great Grand Weaver said this, in the book The, Great, uh, the Grand Weaver said this, while pain is the universal leveler, it works differently in everyone's life. It shapes us uniquely, sparing no one in the process. So don't compare your pain, your suffering to someone else. Say just, God, this is my pain. This is my suffering. What are you trying to do with me through this? Number four, keep looking forward. It's so easy when suffering comes, and it will, just to see the suffering, just to see the pain, to see the hurt. But suffering is not the final answer. God has something for us in that, but look beyond to the greater things that God not only has for you here, but that God has for you in heaven. And I know this is so hard for us to live eternally or to keep eternity in mind. But if you would just consider, if I would just consider the reality of heaven with God, and that is what is awaiting for me, this is not to belittle suffering, but it gives me perspective. 
St. Teresa of Avila said it wonderfully when she said, the most horrible life on earth filled with the most atrocious sufferings will be seen from the viewpoint of heaven to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And if you're familiar with St. Teresa, man, she just lived a life of suffering and suffering with other people. She was a woman who was well-versed in pain and evil and suffering. Clearly, that's not the exhaustive list of what you do when, when suffering comes, but I just wanted to share a few quick things. Well, how does it work for you to come alongside someone? You're doing those things, but what do you do when someone else around you, the bottom falls out and suffering comes in? I'm just going to give you these two quick ones. Number one is this. Be present. People generally speaking, and I've sat with a lot of people who have just gone through it, from rape, from molestations, from suicides, from even doing youth ministry back in the day of kids who had run away. People, generally speaking, don't want well-crafted answers. They just want you to be with them. There is a time to bring words of encouragement, word of affirmation, word of challenge. But my encouragement to you of how do you best come alongside others who are suffering, be present. Dr. Peter Kreef says it again, if your friend is sick and dying, the most important thing he wants is not an explanation. He wants you to sit with him. He's terrified of being alone more than anything else. And he goes on to say, God has not left us alone, and for that, I love him. Let us not leave people alone in the midst of their pain and their suffering. Let us join with them in it and literally be the hands, the feet, the heart of Jesus to those who might not know him, all they know is suffering. And my second challenge and finish with this last point, how do I best come alongside others who are suffering? You've got to point people to Jesus, Christian or non-Christian. Point people to Jesus because where else would you point them? Where else could someone find hope? Where else could someone find healing? Where could someone else find purpose and meaning in the midst of pain and suffering. I can't tell you how many times I've quoted this verse because I just didn't know what else to do or say, but it's my way of pointing people to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares about you. What do you mean he cares about me, Michael? Well, let me tell you about Jesus and how he demonstrated just how much he cares for you. You see, he doesn't want you walking with this pain this, this, this hurt, this suffering. He wants to take it and redeem it and use it for your good and use it for the good of those around you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We're going to spend some time praying, uh, spend some time worshiping through song and worshiping through just remembering Christ and what he did for us. I realize that uh, the topic, the conversation uh, today, I hope stirred up not just some thoughts in your mind of how to think theologically or philosophically or just logically about the problem of pain, but I hope it stirred within you something in your heart, something, an emotion, because I believe that some of you here are being literally shaped by pain and suffering right now. And my challenge, my encouragement to you would be is suffering God teaches us 
but our identity is not based in our pain or identity is not based in our suffering. If you're a Christian, your identity is based in Christ. And my hope today would be that some of you would find healing for a heart that's just been wrecked, shattered, and abused. My hope would be that some of you who have just been ignoring Christ, ignoring Jesus because you're so lost in the midst of pain, today would be a returning of, I'm, I'm going to start walking with him again, regardless of what I'm feeling in terms of pain and suffering. And there are probably some of you who have just sat on the fence for too long, using as an excuse not to get down and start walking in relationship with God something as it relates to suffering. My hope today is that you would see that God cares. He loves you and will walk with you through pain and suffering to draw you closer to him and make you more like him.